Law, Policy, and Markets. Welcome to Millbank Conversations. I'm Alan Marks. Today I'm joined by James Cameron, a partner and co-head of Millbank's Transportation and Space Group in London, and Karen McMaster, a partner in the firm's Financial Restructuring Group, also based in London. Let's get to it. The small town of Bilun, Denmark, is known as the home of Lego, founded there in 1932 by Ole Kirk Christiansen. Three generations later, the Christiansen family and their foundations still own the company famous for its colorful interlocking plastic bricks. Ole's son Gofro built a small airport in Bilun to serve Lego's global expansion. Thanks to the airport, Gottfried Christiansen and his descendants are not the only future billionaires to have built a worldwide business empire from the ground up in tiny Bielun. About the time the Bielun airport opened for its first commercial flights in November 1964, Danish aviation entrepreneur Martin Müller Nielsen was born just up the road in Denmark's Jutland Peninsula. Martin would go on to found aircraft leasing giant Nordic Aviation Capital, ultimately basing his new company in Bielund. From that humble beginning, Martin Müller is now worth an estimated $1.5 billion, having sold a majority stake in Nordic Aviation to private equity firms a few years ago. Bielund's airport is full of regional jets and a hub for commercial airlines and air cargo. Regardless of the insignia painted on their tails, many of the planes there and in airports across Europe and around the world are in fact owned by aircraft finance companies like the Nordic Aviation Group, which lease the planes to airlines and other operators. Nordic Aviation Capital, DAC, or NACDAC for short, is the fifth largest aircraft lessor globally and the world's largest regional aircraft lessor. NACDAC and its more than 100 subsidiaries serve about 75 airline customers in over 50 countries. Its current fleet of over 500 aircraft includes turboprops and regional jets made by ATR, de Havilland, Bombardier, Airbus, and Embraer. In August 2020, NACDAC, now operating out of a new headquarters in Limerick, Ireland, recorded total assets of over $8 billion and total debt of $5.7 billion. How do you pay for planes and cover billions in debt when people stop flying and airlines are going broke? Our story today is about how Nordic Aviation Capital navigated the sudden collapse in air traffic in 2020 with help from its creditors and an Irish court. I sat down with James Cameron and Karen McMaster, who represented the secured creditors in this case, to learn what happened and what it means for cross-border restructurings, aircraft finance, and the interplay between domestic and international law. Jim, Karen, thanks very much for taking the time to get together today. Pleasure. Yeah, pleased to be speaking as well. Very good. So how long did you work on this case with NACDAC? Uh, Karen, it was sort of end to end about four months, wasn't it? It was kind of three, three to four months. That, that's right. I think it sort of started at the commencement of our lockdown period, actually, here in London, and pretty much ran through to the, to the end of the period. I think the company had hoped at the beginning that this would be a relatively simple amendment. And I think for that, 
it actually took much longer and was more complex than they expected. Right. So I'm going to back up for a second, though, because we have NACDAC comes into this having had record profits for 24 years. They just had issued new debt in February and fairly complicated capital structure, lots of subsidiaries. You can tell us a bit more about that. Uh, and business is looking pretty good until COVID-19 hits and uh, there's lockdowns and restrictions on travel and airlines suddenly are losing passengers and parking planes. Yeah. I think it was a surprise to a lot of people, actually, because you know, NAC is you know, the fifth largest lessor in aircraft lessor in the world by number of planes. It is by far the largest turboprop lessor, regional jet lessor. And so for NAC to publicly enter into a court-led restructuring process was a surprise to people. As Karen alluded to earlier, there, there are a lot of reasons for that. The first reason was, you know, with, with other lessors of aircraft, we've seen banks um, be approached by lessors who have facilities, you know, portfolio facilities and the like, and, and they've said, but, you know, we need specific waivers to hit specific problems and to deal with specific problems. And they've been very prescriptive about what those waivers should be and, and how long for and what problem they're solving, whether it's, you know, just lack of liquidity, whether it's debt service, you know, ratio tests, you know, financial covenant tests, debt service coverage ratio, loan to value, et cetera. And, there's, and they've been quite targeted, um, was NAC didn't do that. NAC, you know, for, for whatever reason, really chose to go to their 90-odd creditors across 85 facilities and say, we want a one-size-fits-all 15-month deferral. And, and the financing effectively will move to the right and there'll be no catch-up. And, you know, if you, if, you, if you don't agree to this, then it's chapter 11. And that, that's kind of a, a bit of the background to the approach. The approach for it was it a problem with NAC so early? I think so early in the kind of COVID piece, if you like, a lot of their. I think they were unlucky in in one sense. You know, a lot of their customers became heavily affected by this quite quickly. So they had two or three, you know, big airline customers that had real significant issues, um, and and they ended up with sixty odd airlines either not paying or paying a lot less than they should do. They also seem to have gotten slightly undermined by their own capital structure as well in that they'd ended up in the slightly invidious position of having drawn quite a lot of actual cash into an entity which due to the impact then that um, COVID was having on the rest of the group the directors couldn't feel that they, they could the directors weren't able then to move to move around the group um, which sort of left them in a quite unusual position of having been quite cash rich but not being able to use any of that cash and, and as Jim will get to again that that's that sort of was is, is an aspect that drove the relative um you know that, that kind of caused the intercreditor issues and, and is one of the reasons it was that the, the discussions were that the intercreditor dynamics were more complex yeah and I'd like to understand that better because if you you mentioned you know there's a large number of creditors but they're not all lending to the same entity how how was how is it a problem or a challenge as to which entity was borrowing from whom and how the cash was moving around within the group? And why did that impair their ability to put the cash in the right place? So we think, so I think that they were usually using one of the top, the top company, NACDAC itself, as the treasury entity. Um, and it, it sort of borrowed and you know, cash was swept up to it and cash was then paid back down. The difficulty arose when actually the RCF 
and the, the proceeds of the last drawing of the uh, notes were into a subsidiary whose directors then couldn't get comfortable with the upstreaming of funds to the treasury entity. Right, then just to be clear, so RCS is the revolving credit facility. That's right. And, and the directors at each level have a fiduciary duty to that entity of which they're a director. That's correct. So they, they, they couldn't get comfortable dividending the money up or repaying into company loans that would have seen that money be able to be used for the, for the rest of the group. Um, that was a combination of, I mean, as much of that was sort of bespoke Irish directors' uh, duties, which we won't pretend to be experts on, but I mean, that, that is a situation. I think that's why, in, in some respects, it was particularly unfortunate that they had all of this cash, but then couldn't really use it. Yeah, so to, Alan, to put some numbers on that, I mean, they, they we, the, the company in, in early March went to its creditors and said, you know, we, we, we need this relief. We need to pay you payments. And they, they also said, but we also have $650 million of cash in the group. And the problem is really an accounting problem. And we can't, we can't move that money out of the entity that it's stuck in um, because we think that'll give us going concern issues, amongst other things. And we, we think that yeah, because that cash is trapped in that group as a group, we have a going concern issue. We have, we have a potential situation where in, in, in the end of June, we won't get signed off as a going concern by our accountants in Ireland. And so that leads into your point about directors' duties and directors being comfortable about having the ability to continue to trade liquidly and 650 million dollars was sitting in one of the companies called NAC 29 and it turned out that that company I think actually by happenstance rather than you know structuring or actually possibly not thinking about it but that company had as its main creditor a group of private placement note holders and as Karen said earlier those PPNs that invested 900 million dollars almost in in February and their first contact with the company was can we please have a 15-month waiver and that waiver was requested a month afterwards now, of that 650, about about 500 million of it was in NAC 29, the company that has you know, the liabilities to the PPMs. And you know that 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 company that cash was trapped by operation of an unrestricted assets ratio, or the operation of an unrestricted assets ratio. And of course, when this started, the the, the private placement note said, "There's no way anyone." Is getting their hands on that cash, including, by the way, our clients, the secured creditors. That business had drawn 350 million under an RCF, so that that company was very liquid at the time, but by operation of the ratio, couldn't move the money around. Now, to Karen's point earlier about where the holding company comes in, NAC DAC, that's NAC Designated Activity Company. That company, at the same time, owed almost three quarters of a billion, 726 million, to our client. And so our clients were saying, you know, NAC DAC has given us a guarantee under our financings. And actually, <laughs> you owe us three quarters of a billion. With what's happening in your covenants right now, it's possible that we're owed that money today. But at the same time as the company saying, we can't give it to you because there's a, a, an asset ratio covenant in NAC 29 that locks up half a billion dollars. And the private placement note holders saying, there's absolutely no way we're going to agree to move that money out of that company. So what did the company do? So how did it go about this process of trying to sort it out? I, th I think it made the initial potential mistake, actually, of assuming that all the creditors would look at this with the same sort of hat on. And I think the fact that obviously some creditors were 
inclined not to let that cash move out of the group and other creditors were reliant really on that cash moving out of the group so that they could continue to run its treasury function you know started with us made that dynamic difficult and the fact that 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 first set of creditors were unsecured creditors and the second set of creditors were secured creditors made that additionally difficult because they were already thinking about things with a slightly different point of view but I think what the company did is actually say, look, we're proposing this same amendment for everyone. We're effectively everyone t- asking everyone to take, you know, to, to give us a 12-month breathing space, subject to trying to give some comfort to the PPNs. The company initially sort of said, we want you to waive covenants for this 12 months. And, of course, the waiving of covenants means some things to some creditors and other things to other creditors. And I mean, it was quite significant for those creditors who felt protected by this unencumbered asset ratio and in particular had had access to some cash they'd been able to enforce, not that they had any security. So the company went out with just a very simple vanilla sort of request for a 12-month holiday for covenants to be put on hold, for minimal things to happen in the group. I think they didn't give anyone very much comfort on what was happening with the other stakeholders. And I think they took the view that it would be a sort of easy kind of gift because it seemed reasonable because it was COVID. And, and that kind of transpired not to be the case. Right. So if I, so the company comes out and it says, look, we, we're, we've got these, these problems because of COVID. So we'd like all the creditors to just basically stand down. Uh, we're going to suspend the compliance with covenants. We're going to suspend payments, I suspect, to some degree. Yeah, we're going to push everything out. So that yeah. year would have the effect of pushing everything out by it was a kind of take it or leave it. You know, if, we, if you don't if you don't accept this deal, then it's chapter eleven. Every, the same terms for everyone. No equity injection. All right. So no no skin in the game from the equity. Yeah, fifteen month covenant holiday, fifteen month enforcement waiver, fifteen month principal deferral, fifteen month pay if you can interest. Right. And and also at the same time as Karen said, no renegotiation of OEM contracts or manufacturer contracts, which is the, by far their biggest obligation. You know, we were looking at the numbers and they had, you know, they had running costs of $40, $50 million a month. And part of the reason for that was that they were due to pay in this year $460 million to OEMs by way of pre-delivery payments and, and payments for aircraft. Right. And those are the manufacturers like the Havilland and ATR and Bombardier that they're... Exactly. And then the first, and the first thing, I mean, obviously that, you know, a group of experienced creditors, certainly on the secured side, and they said, why don't you, why don't you go to the OEMs and, and try and defer some of that and, and try and renegotiate? And the answer that NAC gave was, you, you know, you don't really understand. It's very complicated. It's very difficult. You know, it's impossible. These are obligations that we have. We can't walk away from them. And the, and the secured's answer was, well, you also have obligations to pay your loans. And you're asking for a 15-month holiday, basically, to not pay your loans. So... Why don't you ask the OEM, you know, the manufacturers for something, you know, similar or something at least that's going to take the pressure off? Well, I think that I want to pause on that because it, it is one thing that shows getting into this problem initially was really not the company's fault. The business is going pretty well, but there's these dominoes lining up where because of a virus and because of government reactions and health concerns, if people stop flying, airlines don't need the capacity or they don't have the ability to make their, their lease payments on time like they should. Aircraft leasing companies have obligations to manufacturers, to the OEMs, uh, and to their creditors. When it's like it's like musical chairs, and the music stops, and one of the chairs is missing. So, who did the company offer anything to the creditors to make this more palatable? Not, not really at the time, and that that was part of the issue. And I think I think yes, the music did stop at exactly the wrong time for them and for other you know people in the aircraft industry generally. But you, when you look at the structure, you might think to yourself, well, actually. It was a bit of a perfect storm because 
you know, yeah, they have very significant liabilities to private placement note holders that they've just taken on. They've taken on the, the you know, that, that debt. When people were aware of COVID, people were aware of COVID in January, February, and they drew down almost a billion dollars, $900 billion in, in, in February from private placement note holders, and they put it all in one company and locked it up and immediately had a significant amount of liquidity, but also equally pro tanto, the, yeah, an inability to remove that money and use it around their group in a way that they needed to do to continue the trade in a, as a going concern. So, yes, on the one hand, you know, suffering the same misfortune through no fault of their own as other lessors, but you know, with this structural issue that they did create themselves, firstly, and, and, and you know, with, with hindsight, of course, always easy to say, but, but, but secondly, a fairly significant, you know, very strong and possibly misguided approach to you know, all of their creditors for a one-size-fits-all solution. And we just weren't seeing that in the industry. We were, we were seeing, as I said earlier, specific solutions to specific problems rather than, you know, we have to apply the same um, set of terms to all of our creditors. And, and I think that's the thing that, you know, was, was again, with hindsight, unhelpful. So how does this end up in an Irish court? So a simple answer is that NACDAC is an Irish company. More complicated answer is that that wasn't, the, the, the original intention for the company was to do two schemes of arrangement, one in England and one in, in Ireland. And the, the reason for that, the, the, company had, the company was trying to vary obligations that arose under English law, New York law, and also German law. And obviously, as people, as people, people may or may not know that English, English schemes have gotten very adept at varying obligations governed by, by other law, as long as you've got a connection to um, England in the first place. And so the connection they were going to use to England was some of the governing law of, of the English documents themselves. NACDAC was not a borrower of any of the significant facilities that were being buried. The reason that they ended up doing singly an, an Irish scheme was actually due to changes that were made under the English legislation at the time. So we have had some changes here in England to our insolvency laws to kind of to, to put in a what people are calling a, a scheme of arrangement that allows for cross-class cram down. When this legislation came through, it looked like the government was going to try to exclude from the impact of a scheme any holders with Cape Town Convention interests. So, Karen, before we go on to that, I, I want to I want to unpack that just for a second. So, the, for the first challenge, of course, is is making sure when you talk about cram down, is making sure that non consenting creditors are still subject to the the plan or the scheme of arrangement, whatever is then approved by the court. And, you know, I know in the United States, we're familiar with cram down and how that works across classes. It's certainly a little bit different. I think one key here is that the company doesn't have to prove it's insolvent for a scheme of arrangement to work That's right. in Ireland. But the Cape Town Convention brings in this international law aspect to it, because under that treaty, the treaty does not really contemplate that a non-consenting creditor will be able to be crammed down or, in other words, lose its collateral, say, or, or be subject to whatever the court scheme is. So how does that interplay between domestic law and international law play out in this scheme of arrangement concept? It's an interesting question, and I'm not sure it's been entirely bottomed out in this case, but the, the issue is as follows. The Cape Town Convention, which has been adopted in England and in Ireland, provides that you, you know, effectively, as you say, that you can't sort of 
take away a creditor's Cape Town convention rights. And in an enforcement, they will always have a period of time to either um, be paid all their everything they're owed, or to take or to take back their asset. And in this case, our clients, most of our clients, if not all of them, they they had all of them had Cape Town convention interest, and they had security over assets that were owned by the aircraft lessor. However, the way the, the Cape Town and and I, and I think therefore extrapolating on that, when this new legislation came in, it carved out Cape Town convention interest. When you look at the legislation, though. And when you look at what a scheme of arrangement is, and I think you hit the nail on the head when you said a scheme of arrangement doesn't require the company to be insolvent. Under English law and under Irish law, it's a creature of company law. It's not a creature of insolvency law. You don't need to be insolvent. It doesn't have some of the classic precursors of an insolvency process per se, um, in that it's not. it doesn't arise under insolvency legislation. It doesn't carry with it a moratorium. It does, though, do all of the classic things that are, that are insolvency process can do and you know it crams people down it changes their rights without their consent but there is a reading of the Cape Town Convention itself and as enacted in in England and in Ireland that says effectively if what you're doing is not being done under an insolvency process then that is not caught by the Cape Town Convention so there was a lot of lobbying I think done with the government. In the English legislation, the, the, the government on the on the last, you know, the last version that was passed, they had taken out this this um, provision that um, carved out Cape Town interests. So the question then was, are Cape Town interests covered by a scheme? Now, the company was quite keen at one point to have the court in the context of this scheme say for the avoidance of doubt that it was. We were quite keen, even though our clients ultimately, and we can get to this, ultimately supported the scheme. We didn't think necessarily think it was in their interest for the court to, to say that. And there's actually an academic working group that are lobbying, that, that, that they have a view and are trying to kind of put, put forward that view that a scheme doesn't, you know, that the scheme of arrangement shouldn't apply to the Cape Town interest, to vary a Cape Town interest or to... To, or to have the effect that creditors, you know, not able to exercise its rights under a Cape Town interest, which a scheme can do, because effectively what this scheme did did was bury everyone's, you know, you know, force everybody into a standstill, which meant that they couldn't, you know, just go off and enforce their, their Cape Town interests. If you look at the classes of creditors, trade creditors do not have Cape Town interest. We can think of that as like a security interest in the equipment, if you will. Kind of puts distilled down simply, and obviously you need an international treaty for this sort of thing because, unlike you taking out a mortgage on a building, here with aircraft your collateral is flying all over the world. So you kind of do need to have some comedy between countries to be able to enforce liens wherever the the collateral happens to be at the moment. Jim, did any did any of the creditors end up objecting to the scheme, and if they had, would the result have been different? Yeah, a small number of them did, I think, in the end. So in terms of what happened, you know, there was a proposal that was put to the, the court that was rejected um, by the creditors because the unsecured creditors didn't support it. And then subsequently, a further proposal with changed terms, and we can talk a bit about what those changes were, was accepted by 91% of the creditors. And we know that, you know, at least one of our secured creditors' clients didn't vote for the scheme. In terms of what the changes were, there was some equity injection, $60 million of equity put in. The covenant deferral went from 15 to 12 months. The principal deferral went from 15 to nine months. 
there was some renegotiation of the OEM, you know, the manufacturer contracts, the OEM contracts, and interest was rolled up, um, and some other arrangements about fees. But most relevant to what we're discussing with respect to Cape Town was that as, as part of the first proposal was put to the court and rejected, um, the plan or the proposal was that security would be granted over 85% of the company's then unsecured assets. And, and those really were 240 planes that were unsecured, unencumbered, belonging to the company. The company felt that it needed to give the unsecured creditors something in order to get their support for a scheme. It felt that the only thing it really had left to give, absent more equity, which the shareholders weren't going to do, because there's always the risk of Chapter 11, which still exists now. The only thing the company really had to give was security over unencumbered assets. 85% wasn't enough for the unsecured creditors. So when the second proposal went to court that was approved by the unsecured creditors and 91% of the creditors generally, that number had gone to 100%. And why is that relevant to Cape Town and, and to security over international assets? Well, the, the fear from and, and the issue potentially from the secured creditor side was that, you know, be it 85 or 100 percent of security over unencumbered assets, those assets in number and in value were greater than the secured assets that, that our clients had lent money against. So approximately 240 planes out of 440, you know, more than $3 billion worth, as opposed to our clients' $2.2 billion of, of, of liability. And from a Cape Town perspective, one of the things that that legislation has done with countries that have ratified it and selected something called Alternative A is that it is imported into that jurisdiction, and in this case Ireland, a, a rule that is analogous to the what we call the 60-day rule in aircraft financing under the US Bankruptcy Code, Chapter 1110. And what the 60-day rule says is that the debtor really has a choice in, in it, if it's filed um, for, for, for bankruptcy or is subject to an insolvency proceeding, which was really the question, is this an insolvency proceeding or not? If it is, then ask to, and then for Cape Town purposes. And after 60 days, um, the debtor can choose, you know, do I, continue, do I make whole the liabilities with, with respect to this, these assets? and continue to pay for them, or do I effectively reject them and, and, and stop paying and, and, and take the risk that they get repossessed? Now, I guess analysis, well, along with Irish Council, was that you know if that rule applied on a group basis to all of those 240 aircraft, and there was a debate about whether or not Cape Town should apply and the relevant articles should apply, we said no, the unsecured said yes. But the fear was that if that rule was applied, then, you know, for a company that size, 440 planes, 240 of unsecured, you know, 240 uh, security over 240 planes going to the unsecured, uh, the majority, the bigger group, both by in terms of value and asset number, um, then for a company seeking to rationalise, it could be, you know, it, you know, forced into or take the choice that they were going to treat those 240 planes as one group for the purposes of deciding whether or not to accept or reject them, uh, which they would be entitled to do because that debt is cross-collateralized. 
and cross defaulted. And that wouldn't necessarily be a good thing for the secured creditors because they would then be you know, potentially subject to their assets getting picked off and rejected by, on a portfolio by portfolio basis in circumstances in which the company, if it's going to exist in anywhere near the, the shape and size and form that it has, would probably need to accept those 240 aircraft. So it, it became, I mean, it's a, it's a technical, it's a very technical point and, it, and it's an untested point. Um, but the practical implication of it really was that, you know, the unsecureds became a bigger, bigger secured creditor group and, and therefore with a greater chance of potentially having their assets accepted and affirmed by the company. Um, and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a lesser chance of our assets being accepted and, refer, and, and confirmed by the company. And that was really the fear from the secure creditor side. And, and that, I mean, we just hadn't seen that dynamic play out at all with respect to Cape Town. And we hadn't seen until that point, you know, the question being asked as whether or not an Irish scheme for arrangements and insolvency proceeding for Cape Town purposes. That's interesting. Uh, you know, I want to ask a, la- a question, uh, I guess, uh, Karen, to you, a legal one, and then uh, Jim, to you, more of a kind of a market implication part of this. But the legal question is this. You've got, you mentioned before, we've got these contracts for the debt under English law, New York law, German law, uh, the OEM contracts are under their own law. How is it that this Irish scheme of arrangement becomes enforceable in those other jurisdictions or against parties from other places? The way that that was done was that the there is a there is legislation that applies across the EU and applies to obviously England what will no longer apply at the end of the year due to Brexit, uh, which effectively has been interpreted. Um, it's not it's not a neat fit, but there is a judgments regulation which says a judgment that's been awarded in one European country has to be recognised by another European country. And whilst a scheme is not a neat fit within the definition of judgment, it has been pretty much accepted by English courts and certainly by Irish courts. And what a company will do is go out and get expert opinions to say this will be accepted by a German court, this will also be accepted by an English court. So they relied on that working for England and and for Germany in respect of New York, um, the company filed for Chapter 15, so the Chapter 15 recognition of what was done in, in the scheme of arrangement. It's kind of interesting if you think of the Cape Town nexus, you've got a, a, a U.S. Chapter 15, that's an insolvency law, in, you know, a recognition of a scheme of arrangement, which itself is the argument not an insolvency proceeding, but a company's back proceeding, just sort of an ironic. Yes. <laughs> yes it, exactly. it, that right there tells you that you have either you, you know, you, you you have something which looks like one thing from one side and a different thing from a different side. Yes, and that's an interesting point, actually, Alan, because we see English schemes trying to be used for sort of racier, and if I'm going to use colloquialism, it's a racier and racier sort of with broader and broader kind of effect. And doing things that you could probably, you know, even, even our new cram down legislation doesn't import any of the protections you have in chapter 11, doesn't import absolute priority rule, doesn't import a sort of, you know, impaired creditor, you know, having to vote in favour kind of rule. And to date, the chapter 15 analysis has been sort of a bit of a, you know, rubber, you know, just a kind of stamping exercise the company does. But we do actually think that the more English and European schemes vary from what would be kind of the equivalent acceptable principle in the US, 
there may be more room to challenge not not the scheme as being enacted under the home jurisdiction, but actually the extent to which the U.S. courts will give effect to it. Right. Kind of like that Wittgenstein picture of the, it looks either like a duck or a bunny, depending on your Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, Jim, if you're a, if you're looking at doing financing going forward, you're a cre- you're a potential creditor. You're you're a your business to lend money to aircraft leasing companies. How does this case change your risk assessment or any of the market practices potentially coming down the pike? I, I think the NAC situation so early in COVID. I think they thought they, they saw this sort of market leading company, fifth largest lessor, by far the market leader in its in its niche, very quickly. Uh, needing a, a court-supported restructuring, and that, that definitely gave you know some people pause for thought. You know, how has this happened? You know, are, are all lessors do all lessors have this issue? But I think those that have understood the fact pattern, which is a very unusual fact pattern. I mean, it's not; it's a peculiar fact pattern. Um, and like I said, it's not NEC didn't take the same approach that other lessors have taken. You know, I think people who have understood the fact pattern have understood that it's it is a bespoke situation. Now, now, the reality is, is that there's, there's not an enormous amount of lending to leasing companies at the moment anyway, because, you know, not fresh lending, although we are seeing some more of the type of day-to-day activity that we were doing six or eight months ago coming back. But, you know, given the current environment, the vast majority, if not all of the world's airlines wanting to rationalise and get smaller, you know, and a significant percentage of those likely seeking further restructuring or restructuring or some sort of solution then yeah there's no doubt it's definitely a challenging analysis and yeah at least till people understood what had gone on here i think you know the nac situation was um wasn't helpful uh, in terms of how the industry reviewing you know less or credits and lending to less orders. but i think what nac would and others would hope is that with a bit with a bit of deeper understanding, people can understand why uh, this has happened and how it got solved. Right, and one would hope a year from now, let's say, you know, when you're when the twelve month moratorium or standstill period is up, if traffic has resumed to some extent, if airlines are you know improving their liquidity positions, one would expect then that perhaps you know covenants can come back in, maybe on a modified basis if need be. Uh, that service will continue, and you'll start to still see the the wheels moving to to finance capacity additions ultimately for the aircraft industry. A, a lot of lessors asked for less, and, and and in a more specific targeted way. So, some of the deferrals and waivers we were were three or six months. Some of them were nine months. Some of them were twelve months. But they were they were targeted and they were particular to to certain fact patterns. I think if the question is, yeah, when is the airline industry coming back? I think the answer is. You know, there, there are pockets of, of the world where air traffic is not necessarily back to normal, but it's back to quite significant levels. You know, and China uh, is, is one of those, for example, as I understand it, and parts of Asia. You've seen a cluster of restructurings in Latin America, and it's possible that you'll see you know, clusters of restructurings in other places. Quite, you know, in Latin America, for example, you know, you know, if you look at Avianca, you, you know, you have one large airline. That competes with three or four others, like you know, Aeromexico and Goal and a couple others, Latam, and you know, if all of those, you know, if some of those don't restructure in the same way that Avianca has, then they end up having to compete with a rationalised business. I mean, the, the other piece of it is, you know, when people talk about where's the bottom, you know, aircraft values are reduced on the 
one on the one hand you might say why is that because there's comparatively a market so how can an appraiser assess the value of an aircraft because they're not really trading you know but, but they have they have done and they've appraised them downwards uh, when's that coming back and you know, part of the issue is and part of the, the thing that will potentially unlock rationalization MA, you know consolidation will be when people have a better understanding of where the bottom of the market is and you know, some of the people I've spoken to are thinking that they may be more distressed, you know, before Christmas, and they may be for, and there may be some more, you know, early in the new year, end of Q4, early Q1, and if that's the case, then you know, people will have a better idea what the assets are worth and what they can do by way of financing solution and risk taking going forward. You know, you would think uh, towards the end of Q1 and, and beyond that. Now, all I would say is that six months ago, people were saying that we'd be in that situation now, and we're not. Right. Well, I guess that kind of brings up the whole point of restructurings, whether it's a consensual workout, a scheme of arrangement like this, or a you know a, a full-on bankruptcy or insolvency proceeding. You're kicking the can down the road and right-sizing the business for the new reality. And just ideally, you're not kicking the can off a cliff, where you have a, a problem to face six months or a year from now again. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, this was definitely a sort of band-aid restructuring. Whether that's going to be enough for this company is going to be to be seen. One of the relatively unusual aspects of this of this restructuring, if, especially if you're coming at this as a US creditor, is that the whole restructuring was done via a guarantor. So none of the none of the SPV lending entities were put into a process, and that was a sort of particular quirk of Irish law in that. Irish law was able to affect by doing a scheme of arrangement of a guarantor they were able to say that's the, the guarantor's obligation is so closely linked to the principal debtor's obligation that this same scheme can vary that principal debtor's obligation what that means i think for spv lending is that you know a lot of people who you know if you're a creditor lending certain amount to an SPV ring fenced, you know, no, no insolvency remote, no, no ability for other creditors to lend into that box. You might be forgiven for thinking that your debt claim can't be varied because there's no other creditors there to cram you. Um, and what was done here is that the guarantors that benefit those debt claims and all the creditors of the guarantors were used as the voting majorities to cram down principal claims. Now, whether that would ever survive an objection, like a, a real objection, is, an, is another thing. But it's, it's worth bearing in mind in terms of asset finance lending because it sort of, it arguably runs a coach and horses through the principles of, of, of that in, in terms of, you know, your, your exposure to other creditors with just one common guarantor making a decision that's different from your decision. Yeah, that's a hugely important point. So. To wrap it up, what's the bottom line lesson learned for each of you, do you think, that um, would be applicable to somebody else going forward? There's a couple of points. One is, I think the approach at the start made it harder for the company than it could otherwise. And I think what NAC would say is, you know, how, how can we in a short period of time negotiate, renegotiate 80, 80 and, I, and I completely understand that that would have been a difficult thing to do. And some of the others that we've worked on have taken you know, months rather than you know, weeks. The approach of kind of one size fits all didn't, didn't work. And I think, in hindsight, when I need to look at the structure, you know, of, of having a lot of money in one company locked up and one group of creditors, 
really to that company when you have you know a whole load of other stuff going on and, and a whole load of other companies and SPCs and creditors etc. I think that created again potentially more an issue than anyone expected. Good, thank you, Jim. Karen, I think the company probably ended up burning more relationship capital than it certainly would have liked when it started off this process with its relationship banks because it effectively gave away their leverage when it agreed to give security to the unsecured note holders. It wasn't really within its gift, but once that decision had been made, it was very difficult to get, you know, short of voting down the scheme, which no, you know, a lot of banks will be loath to do. There's not much that can be done, but that doesn't mean to say that that's not going to be, you know, quite damaging to the relationship going forward. And again, whether that's, you know, whether that plays out or not, I mean, I'm not sure that's a lesson learnt, but I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's a good example of where restructurings, where you know, companies, if they haven't sort of thought about how they're going to play all these different relationships, can end up between a rock and a hard place and having to make some decisions that are not really necessarily in their best interests. Good. Well, I, we'll have to leave it there. I want to thank you both. I know it's difficult to take something as extraordinarily complicated. Uh, both commercially and legally as this case and try to distill it down in just a few minutes uh, for a discussion like this. But uh, congratulations on at least getting it to a, a finish line of sorts. And thanks very much for explaining it. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for joining us for another Millbank Conversation. We trust you find our expertise and insights compelling. Learn more at millbank.com.